that batch of ideas is basically stale. a Doritos bag from 2008. You know, it's stale. Yeah. We don't need it anymore. You can you can eat it, but it's disgusting. It won't crunch, and you probably will get sick. <laughs> That's Might probably the perfect analogy. That's per- the perfect analogy. Why? Because it's orange? Is that it? Orange man bad. <laughs> orange, orange man doesn't go crunch anymore, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Donald J. Yeah, Trump so. has lost his crunch. He's a stale Dorito bag from 2008. Put it on the board for Yael Ososki. Well, hello and welcome to Consumer Choice Radio Broadcasting across North America. We are now early November. I'm feeling... Uh, a bit damp from the weather, but we're looking at the calendar and we got plenty of events that will be impacting consumer choice and you come this week and beyond. I'm one half of your host, Yael Ososki, broadcasting from the Central European Citadel studio. And I've got David Clementa on the line here. He's got a couple things going on in his world, his neck of the woods, and I'm excited to get back on the mic and talk to the audience again about what is all about. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's a good program, and we have um, uh, an interview uh, with Joanna Johnson, who is a very uh, prominent TikToker. We talked about the QP strike. Uh, it's actually fun. It, was, it started as a disagreement, um, just a bit of a teaser. It started as a disagreement on Twitter um, between Joanna and I, and then turned into a pretty good conversation about the QP strike. Um, so it's, uh, it, it's fun times. I mean, there's a lot going on in Ontario. The midterms are right around the corner. Um, there's just, uh, <laughs> there's a lot to unpack here. Indeed. By next week, uh, we'll be speaking to you and, uh, trying to cover all the consumer issues, but we'll have a, probably a different political landscape, at least in the United States. So that will change things up. I got to hit you with something right off the bat because we cannot not talk about it. Um, just I just got the push notification on my phone, and it says, Breaking news, Donald Trump expected to announce 2024 bid soon after the midterms, possibly as early as November 14th. Because you'd be in jail. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I'll, I'll, you, your thoughts first, and then I'll give you my thoughts. I think... Um... I think most people have moved on. Uh, those who are in the Trump base, you know, they are dealing with new issues. Uh, they're dealing with, I mean, probably somewhat congruent to the Ontario situation. You know, the aftermath of schools being closed. They're, we're, they're dealing with the energy crisis. We're, we're talking about um, how we're going to, I mean, realistically, how we're going to respond as a country, as an economy to the entire Inflation Reduction Act and all of the unintended consequences of that, and that's just far beyond the Trump world. And I don't know if uh, if Trump has anything additional to add. There will be a legacy vote that goes for DJT, but I think most people have their eyes fixated elsewhere. And all he's going to do is serve to ramp up the kind of Democratic base. So I think I, I think uh, if you are center right and you you happen to like some of the ideas of DJT, you should know at this point it serves more as a kind of creatine to the brain of uh, the democratic machine than it does to any yeah um, any good conservative principles. Yeah, I mean you have a president on the ropes, and um, 
I think having Trump as the nominee is just opening up the game again, right? It makes it close. When there are plenty of um, more sensible, although I disagree with a lot of the, the other contenders as well on a variety of issues, but like in terms of likelihood of, of beating Joe Biden, I think Ron DeSantis or, I mean, there's several other prominent Republicans who are currently governors who have been kind of considered as possible um, front runners for 2024 who are a lot more sane, a lot more put together, a lot more focused. You know that they can handle or tackle bigger problems. I mean, it just seems like the Republican Party needs to grow up and move on um, and that they need to put that era to bed. I mean, I think the real thing, if we learned anything from the primary in which Trump won, is a a, a saturated field of candidates will ensure that he wins, right? When Trump announced, I think there was like 11 candidates at the start. Um, and that allows for you to win states with lower percentages of the vote. I mean, it ended up coming down to Ted Cruz versus Donald Trump at the very end. Um, but I don't, if it was a two-person race, Cruz versus Trump from the beginning, I actually don't think Trump would have won. Um I well, people that... like a spectacle, and that's what uh, Trump provided, but he's no longer a spectacle. He is now more of a, an irritant, and I don't think his word is as gospel anymore. He has been uh, to, oh, I hope to so. what, the, I hope so. what the tech elite uh, did um, right after January 6th, has made sure he was purged from the social media networks, removed his voice pretty much from the political conversation. You know, they did not remove his ghost. I don't think anything will do that until he's flushed down the golden toilet, as it were. He has a golden toilet in his house, that's why I say that. Uh, but I, yeah, I think in, in my own kind of view is that he was, like, let, let's imagine you're a median MAGA reporter, uh, reporter. <laughs> there are none of those. Uh, let's say you're a median, median MAGA voter. You know, Trump served his cause. He went in there, he upset the libs, so-called. He got the justices from the conservative side in. He did his work there. And that's about all you need because there's nothing new that's coming from the Trump camp. You know, what is he going to say about energy? Okay, he'll say we need to get uh, Keystone back up. We need to do that. Okay, well, is that his message? No. Yeah, uh, this is the thing is that you, like, you're dealing with generational inflation Trump was certainly not a conservative in regards to spending um, by any means. I mean, he was a big spender. If you want fiscal restraint and you want someone to really tighten the belt a little bit to to keep the ship a course, um, he's not your guy. He's just not that guy. Um, and it's just such a distraction. It's such a distraction... Um, I think it would be a huge disservice. I'm going to call it the rebuild um, post-COVID. It'd just be a huge disservice to the rebuild. Um, I think foreign policy-wise, it's probably going to, it would be very convoluted. It's like the question of Ukraine. I don't know where Donald Trump would be. I mean, he, I don't think he, he knows. He, he said on, it's hilarious, there's an Instagram video, famous golfer John Daly. 
um, is on the phone with Donald Trump because I assume they golf a lot uh, together. And Trump says, you know, I uh, this never would have happened if I was president. And Daly's just asked him. He's like, oh yeah, okay. What 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 would you have done differently? He's like, well, I told Vladimir, and we get along really well. I told him that if he did anything in Ukraine, I'm gonna nuke Moscow. And you're like, oh, okay. Well, maybe, but also maybe not. Um, I, I I just feel like the issues of the day need an adult in the room, and and Trump is not that guy. He's he's just. I, not I don't that even guy. think it's about the adult part. I it sincerely is just that that batch of ideas is basically stale. a Doritos bag from 2008. You know, it's stale. Yeah, we don't need it anymore. You can you can eat it. But it's disgusting. It won't crunch, and you probably will get sick. <laughs> That's probably the perfect analogy. That's per- the perfect analogy. Why? Because it's orange. Is that it? Orange man. Bad. <laughs> orange, orange man doesn't go crunch anymore, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Donald J. Yeah, Trump so. has lost his crunch. He's a stale Dorito bag from 2008. Put it on the board for Yael Osaski. Yes, uh, that's another one there. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm hopeful for any kind of change because, as you guys might know, for Consumer Choice Center, we're promoting these ideas and have, as things have been going, there have been a lot of really big plans in the international capitals, particularly in D.C., and they haven't necessarily always aligned up with our values, and the timing has not been the best, but we have a change. If we have a divided government... Uh, we say all the better. It's a good opportunity to actually discuss the merits of various proposals and costs. Um, yeah, I mentioned the IRA Inflation Reduction Act, David, because I was listening to a, a couple of shows and was reading some stuff in the business press. I think we're we're not we haven't even seen the beginning of when this is going to hit and when it's going to hurt because the amount in taxes that have to be risen in order to pay for these credits so that you can put an energy efficient window in your house uh, it's going to be monumental and that's going to actually take it's going to be extracting a lot of money from ordinary taxpayers companies in order to just shift it to pay paul peter to pay paul right that's the old analogy yeah well and the we're going to see the economic the... impact of that and i'm not too hopeful about what it means it might mean the stock market will go up temporarily but uh, it's going to make life more expensive, and you, you still have inflation. It's not as if uh, just because he's been by diktat, <laughs> by the pen of Joe Biden, inflation monster has been told to go away. Yeah, it's not how it works. Doesn't mean he's going to. Yeah, I feel like we got to have Mark uh, Calabria back on the program to talk about how close a housing market in the U.S. is to collapsing again. Um, because the Fed's going to keep intra- keep raising rates, at least it looks like it, um, and they're kind of setting the tone globally. But how many how many borrowers are at risk now? I mean, I know I I see it in Ontario. Um, Canadians are traditionally a little more over levered on housing than than anywhere else um, in the world. But that Canadians uh, have always had way more just debt, feel- by the way, too, like credit card debt as well. Oh yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. Well, I, I mean, it's a uh, credit card debt, housing debt. It's it's we are a very indebted peoples, um, and obviously with rising rates, that is getting quite difficult to service. I'm we're starting to see home prices come down. They're not coming down enough, where where they're more affordable when you factor in the increased mortgage payments. But uh, 
yeah, I mean, it just it kind of feels like the U.S. economy, the Canadian economy, is like a house of cards, just like one brisk wind away from from, from unraveling, and that is a very sober moment. And you got to really think about, okay, well, how, whom do you want to be the captain of the ship? Um, when it hits the fan or if it hits the fan. And, uh, that should be the question of the day. I think for Republicans, I mean, it will be the question of the day for Canadian voters. When we have a, a another election between now and 2025, we really don't know. Um, so yeah, it's that's absolutely ridiculous. By the way, I don't know if it's hard coded in the law that there can't be in another election, but there absolutely should be. No, no. So it's that there. I mean, there could be one tomorrow, or well, like in thirty days from now. But the Liberals would have to lose the support of the NDP, and it doesn't look like the NDP is going to waver from supporting the Liberals. So they they have a majority via this cooperation agreement. So, so long as that lasts, there will not be an election. Um, what it would take for that to fall apart, I don't know. Part, of, To be honest, part of me feels like this is just gamesmanship from the liberals, where they're just waiting to see, um, like, what happens next. So, like, if they can, if, if rising rates does a better job of, of taming inflation, and they can kind of carry that as their, oh, look what we did, um then maybe we'll see an election sooner or maybe they like, it's really just a guessing game because if things really fall apart, um, like an 08 style crisis, incumbents are not going to win. It doesn't matter what side you're on. I just don't think there's a scenario where the incumbents uh, win in, in any, whether it be a state race, a provincial race, a federal race, there's just going to be a lot of blame to go around. Um, so yeah, I mean, it would be nice if we had a little bit of certainty. Um, I'm certainly enjoying watching Pierre Polyev and Trudeau exchange barbs in, in parliament. Um, it's, it's, I mean, for people who enjoy this stuff, it's entertaining. Um, but it is also nice to see a little more serious, um, criticism and holding the liberals feet to the fire a little bit, um, which is nice. Even if you don't like Pierre Polyev, and certainly there are a lot of people who don't, um, an effective opposition is part of a very healthy democracy, and so that should be encouraged. The government should be held to account all the time. And, I mean, the latest one was Arrive Can. The conservatives somehow got the NDP to agree to audit the Arrive Can um, app because there are all sorts of weird anomalies in terms of how much it cost and all that stuff but um yeah yeah we'll uh we'll get more we'll, we'll dig more into some of this uh, when we return from the break back on consumer choice radio uh, we hit upon some of the uh, economic things we got the midterms in the u.s uh, some canadian things sh- shaken up but david before we do that let's have a little bit of fun since we've got some people coming in um, we're going to look at the revenue of the biggest fast food chains oh okay 
I You're going um, right off the chart here. All right, let's yeah, see it. I was awoken to this just because I've heard a lot about uh, oil profits, and uh, we can we can discuss this a bit later because this is very particular to Canada. Um, there's a proposal by the uh, Trudeau government to uh, tax stock buybacks, which has to be the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. But uh, I sincerely don't think there's anyone who's ever worked in private a private company uh, who is in the Trudeau government. Apparently. Uh, regardless, uh, <laughs> let's look at the top uh, fast food chains. Um, these these numbers come from the states. I couldn't find any Canadian numbers, um, but let's look at the top ten, and I want you to try to guess the bottom five. Oh, okay. Oof. Yeah. Uh, bottom five. Bottom five. Uh, sorry, of the top ten. Yeah. Right? Who are six, seven, eight, nine, ten? Pizza Hut, Taco Bell. Okay, so Pizza Hut. Uh, Taco Bell, no. Taco Bell is um, number five. Oh, okay, I was close. Um, yeah. In and Out, Sonic. In and Out and Sonic, no. No. So In and Out is a bad guess because they're mostly on the Regionals. West Coast, I believe. Yeah. 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 Um. Chick-fil-A is not in the bottom five. It can't be. Chick-fil-A comes in at number eight. Oh, interesting. But their chicken is so good. Um, uh, I think it also might be, it's not regionalized. They've expanded, but they still have a big hold on the southeast. Mm-hmm, and uh, mm-hmm. I think they're spreading out west. Okay, so I've got a couple here. Who are the bottom five? All right, so let's go to the bottom five. Un, deux, trois, quatre, cinq, Okay, so let's start at number six. Three, four, five. Number six is Wendy's. I would have put them in the top four. Nope. Uh, number six is Wendy's. Number seven is a surprise. It can't Dunkin' be Donuts. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of competition in, <coughs> in the morning coffee space. And then after Dunkin' Donuts, we've got Chick-fil-A, as we mentioned. And then we've got Domino's. Oh, I mean, Domino's is such a success story, though. If you look at their stock price, which is not necessarily an indicator that the company is great, but when they redid the formula for their sauce years ago, basically just took off. And they made the app and, like, all this stuff. They kind of Uberized Domino's a little bit. Um, Highly recommend. That is my fast food pizza of choice. So after Domino's, we've got Pizza Hut and uh, Panera Bread. Interesting. So let's look at the, uh, let's do the top five. McDonald's has um, got to be number one. So let's start with, um, we'll go up, up the list here. Um, number one, McDonald's. Mm-hmm. So they made in the U.S. alone $37 billion. Yeah. I wonder if this is like, um, I'm sure there's some economist who, you know how they have like weird, like, uh, recession indicators like when how do you know a recession has happened or is happening or is coming i'm sure that fast food expenditure must be part of that because generally speaking in the overall inflation discussion we're seeing grocery bills uh, inflate quite seriously um, but the the fast food restaurants have done a okay job of tempering some of those price increases, and so comparatively, they become cheaper. And then, in my thought process, they 
people buy more fast food because it's quick, easy, and cheap as like a protection against inflation. Um, so maybe this is like an indicator of bad economic times. Yeah, and I would assume you'd also see some consolidation because you're not going to go for the higher end places. You know, you're not going to go for the Zaxby's or the Jimmy John's, <laughs> uh, but you'll go for the, the other stuff. So number one was McDonald's, and it um, is three times bigger than the number two. Subway? Uh, number two is Starbucks. Oh, yeah. I guess I don't... They are fast food, but I... They consider it a snack restaurant. But yeah, yeah number three is Subway. Yep. And then Burger King... Uh, rounds out the top four, so that's ten million a year. At Burger King and Subway, are about the same. It's only about uh, about a hundred million. So, but out of locations, because they have number of franchises, there are twenty five thousand Subways. Really, but only seven thousand Burger Kings. Interesting, huh? I I would yeah, never you, have guessed that either. Yeah, there's probably been a, a lot of expansion in the in the whole you know the subways, and what's also would be interesting is understanding these franchises how they actually operate. You know, do people actually own them or do they rent the name? You yeah, know, this kind yeah. Of thing. I mean, That'd the, kind of the cool thing that gets me about Subway is like, how did they convince? And this is like very much a '90s kid thing. How did they convince an entire generation that cold meat on a loaf of bread was healthy? <laughs> Bro, have you seen any of these other fast food chains? I mean, no, I, Taco Bell. Hello. Uh, Taco Bell is the healthiest fast food chain, calorie wise. You can look that up. They're 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 actually quite competitive um, in terms of caloric in- intake uh, and like net calories. Uh, I, I have did- seen a lot that um, KFC, which is technically Taco Bell, right? Yum Brands. Um, so they have uh, an entirely different division in China. That is essentially a health food, fast food place, where this is like salads and shakes and stuff. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, oddly enough, uh, KFC is way down the list. It's under Chipotle. Very strange. Okay, they are very popular in in China because I remember when the uh, one of the Chinese ambassadors, one of those goofballs, tweeted how many Chinese food restaurants were in Taipei, and he's like, "See, Taiwan is part of China." And then somebody responded, there's like 150 KFCs in Beijing. And someone's like, see, Beijing is part of Kentucky. Beautiful. <laughs> yeah, that whole thing with uh, globalization, man, it hits you right, right in the neck. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I thought we'd uh, take a little well, that's know, fun. ride out of that and, and look at some, some fast food stuff. That's fun. I like that. I like that. Prime now. Yeah, there's a lot of cool stuff that's happening with the uh, the consumer market there, and um, I'm I'm not sure. We've seen a little bit on consumer spending. You know, people are obviously tightening their belts because prices are going higher. Uh, definitely a lot of calamities to come in the credit markets, whether it be mortgages, as you mentioned, David, or um, credit card. You know, because credit card interest rates are not set in stone either. They can also jack up. Uh, yeah, they're usually pretty high. Yeah, they're like twenty percent. I think where we're really gonna see a bubble is on business loans, um, because those are like that's where you get into like the inflationary spiral. So let's say you, which so many small businesses did, you took out loans to stay afloat, um, to stay afloat over the pandemic. And you took those loans at low interest, but let's say they're variable or they get renewed at three or five years. 
um, if they're variable or, renew, or, or renewed in this kind of time horizon of rising rates, well, boom, your servicing on that has just increased substantially. Let's say you're a restaurant, you're increasing prices, you're laying people off, and it's like oh, that starts to sound like the the inflationary um, recession balance where what's next is really not that comfortable. Um, and so I think there's probably going to be a bit of a bubble there where... Well, that's where most of the newly printed money normally goes anyway, like the, the yeah. spigot yeah. of uh, <laughs> the newly printed uh, money that comes from the central banks usually ends up going to these businesses first and a lot of the banks and, um, you know, it's all made up anyway. So it's all just things in the computer and you just add a couple of zeros. Yeah. What a, what a, uh, what an insane time there. Um, I, I know I keep focusing on this inflation reduction act, but I sincerely think that we're not, we haven't even seen the impact of this. We're seeing a lot of the layoffs that are coming to the tech industry. That is a, a huge, big news. It's huge. not just what's going on at Twitter, but you know, you do have layoffs that are hitting uh, basically at every company. There's thousands of jobs that are being shed, whether it be Stripe or Amazon, Lyft. Lyft. Yeah. Um, it's pretty all wide. Kinds of companies. It's um, pretty widespread. Are, I mean, it happened here in Canada with Skip the Dishes. Um, and again, this is not to, I mean, not to hammer on the recession topic so much, but like it kind of feels like that's the start. And then when that starts to creep over into more working class jobs, that's where you get into big trouble. Um, and yeah, I mean, Wealth Simple had a bunch of layoffs. Anywhere, anyone in the crypto space, <laughs> same deal. Um, well, that was months ago, but yeah, it's continuing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, good time to be uh, consumer advocates and radio hosts, I suppose. <laughs> Very true. Um, money just keeps raking in here, folks. Um, <laughs> uh, but things are, are going uh, going in a certain direction. And, you know, when you mix in politics and you mix in some of these races and uh, some changing, um, you know, we haven't seen we've seen sort of things taper off a bit in the United Kingdom, which is sort of the, yeah. the first place that things were hit really bad. But uh, big focus. I, I'm excited for after the midterms, by the way, this helps clear out a lot of I think uh, what we call regime uncertainty. So we kind of know how things will look next year. You know, are we going to have even more inflationary spending? Are we going to have cuts? Are we going to have some good market-oriented reforms? Uh, that I hope. Or, or do we just have a logjam where everything gets stalled? Um, which I think is the likely outcome where Republicans maybe control the House and the Senate. We'll see. Um, if ironically, a lot of it will come down to the two very controversial races we've talked about, Herschel Walker in Georgia and Dr. Oz versus Fetterman in Pennsylvania. And Oprah came out and endorsed uh, doc, or, uh, endorsed Fetterman over Dr. Oz, and everyone's freaking out because she helped create Dr. Oz. Um, now, like, do you think he's miffed about that? Do you think he's like, yo, Oprah, what the hell? No, I think he, the second he put R on his name, he lost... 90% yeah, of anyone done. who's ever supported him in in entertainment. <laughs> That's just kind of... I, uh, there are some great meme videos out there that you guys can be watching right now that uh, some of them we can recommend. Others we can't. Uh, that would be for the, uh, the secret chat of uh, Consumer Choice Radio uh, because uh, there's a lot of really good stuff out there. And I'm, I'm interested in your conversation um, with 
um, the for the next segment, David, because he, you know the TikTok world is not one that we're in. No, necessarily. No, um, you might follow it a bit more than than myself, but it definitely is something that is influencing culture and uh, yeah. seeing how political themes work into that and are in you know probably our opinion very skewed in one direction. Um, there's there you know could be some change that's coming up, and who knows what policy might come from uh, from either. Um, I don't think there'll be anything out of Canada, but probably in the U.S. there will be some kind of hard line on TikTok yeah, uh, to yeah, come I within the so. next year. I think so. Yeah, our next guest is a is a teacher, uh, Joanna Johnson, goes by Unlearn Sixteen on TikTok and Twitter. She makes these really good um, kind of ranty videos in her car about like a topic of the day. And I mean, even if I disagree, I'm watching them like entertained. There's like a nice snarky comedic value um to it um makes me it, it kind of makes me go oh why were all my high school teachers such duds <laughs> um but yeah just a great conversation um joanna falls on the other side of the qp debate i'm apathetic i mean the notwithstanding clause is an extraordinary way to keep kids in school but then at the same time i'm no fan of qp um they are no fan of me which will be a topic for another show um yeah so great conversation what a ridiculous part of the what a ridiculous part of the canadian constitution though no I... an entire section that's like by the way if we just like mention this nothing else applies yeah yeah it's <laughs> like on, yeah. here are all the things that are protected except for this last little note where they're no longer protected because this document the last note in the document can null and void everything else um so, yeah, great conversation yeah, uh, with Joanna. Uh, we'll definitely have her on the program uh, at some point down the road. Okay, very, very cool. And um, we like debates here at Consumer Choice Radio. We're, we're here to promote, obviously, uh, mm-hmm. consumer ideas, pro-consumer ideas, especially choice. And when we're talking about government funding or we're talking about teacher unions or we're talking about the battles between uh, taxpayers' funding and government institutions, there's all kinds of monopolies to bust up on whatever side you think. Uh, So great, David. Thanks for that interview. We'll cue that up. You guys keep listening to Consumer Choice Radio. We'll be right back after this. And we are back on Consumer Choice Radio. Very excited um, to chat about the the ongoing battle between Doug Ford and CUPE and uh, education workers uh, with teacher Joanna Johnson. backstory here we engaged on twitter on the issue so i figured you know what uh let's have joanna on the show to talk about what is going on uh thank you very much for joining us on the program oh thank you so much for having me i kind of love like i was saying earlier before we were filming i love uh i love a healthy intellectual debate on opposite sides i live for mm-hmm. it absolutely so, and so- sometimes twitter you get cut off yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's hard in limited characters. Um, but basically, for anyone who's not familiar, essentially, CUPE, the public sector union who represents education workers, not teachers. Um, so everyone else involved in, in education, more or less, uh, was in negotiations with the Ford government. Those negotiations dissolved. They wanted something like 11% as, as a pay increase. Their justification was inflation, which everyone knows is, is kind of getting away from us. Um, the Ford government backtracked and, and said no, and there was 
threat of a strike, which we will see how that plays out because we're recording this before it happens. Um, but what really w was made controversial here is the Ford government saying that they would invoke the notwithstanding clause to essentially force education workers back to work. Uh, a drastic step, something that is supposed to be rarely used. Um, but I'm, I, I give our listeners your take on, on what has happened. Well, and it's not even supposed to be rare. It's not even supposed to be rarely used in a It's it's never used. Like we have to we have to really put that in perspective. I'm not going to go down a list of times where it's been used. Quebec was the last significant time protecting language rights. And I feel like that's a whole other discussion. So I'm not going to step into that too much. But it's never used. It's it's truly never used. And the reason why it was put into play in the first place is because Trudeau wanted to pass a constitution and the provinces were nervous that the federal government was going to overreach their authority mm -hmm. in telling provinces how to do business, right? That was the point of it. The point of it, if any, we have an American listeners, the point was to give some provincial right and control in the what if scenario, right? Mm -hmm. Like Alberta was one of the first people to say, we, we need that notwithstanding clause. And I would guess it was to protect their use and their control over the energy sector in that province that other provinces didn't have. So you could see it might be a, a different need for that kind of control. In this case, I don't think anybody can argue. Doug Ford can't negotiate with unions. He's chosen not to negotiate. He's chosen not to give the raise. We can get to the 11%, mm -hmm. but I don't, I don't know if we need to fight about the 11%. Let's be honest. That's a bargaining chip that you mm -hmm. play and then you expect way less. So let's also understand. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. You're, that you're supposed to put in any negotiation, you start, you start high and you work your way yes. to some sort of middle ground is the idea. They, they start at 11, Ford says nothing, and you're supposed to, that's the point of a, of a bargain. Um, and when he threatened this, the reason why he threatened this and the reason why he will follow suit on it is because the last time this happened, Kathleen Wynne under the liberal liberal government actually forced educator educators back to work in a similar situation. She did not use the notwithstanding clause. She just mm -hmm. used legislation to do so. And when she forced them back to, to work, they eventually took it to court and won mm -hmm. as that piece of legislation was deemed unconstitutional. So Doug Ford doesn't want to make the same mistake because it would be clear violation. So what he has to one yeah. up. There's precedent so that he would probably lose under yeah, the, the way in which when, yeah. Same precedent. So he has to usurp the constitution in order to enforce these workers back to work. So here's where we're sitting. We're sitting at a provincial premier using the notwithstanding clause, not for its original intended purpose in any respect, but but literally to deal with unions that he doesn't like them having a significant amount of power and mm -hmm. he doesn't want them striking. Now, we have essential workers in this province. We have firefighters, police officers, and nurses. Mm -hmm. They all have essential service status, which means they can't strike. Why? Well, because people die if they went on strike. That would be an undue level of power, right? Yep. So what happens in that case? What happens in that case is you, you go to you know, media, sorry, you go to the contract negotiations. If it doesn't work, you then go to sort of a mediation. You get an arbitrator who steps in. Both sides have to agree. Mm -hmm. And the arbitrator takes precedent, takes labor law, and formulates a fair and just and 
from what I understand, a relatively equitable, you know, contract. Yep. He doesn't want that. He doesn't want that. And initially, my video said, make them essential. Right? Make them mm -hmm. essential. They're either essential or they're not. You don't get to say, well, you're going to strike, but you're essential. You but then uh, legally make the distinction of essential. You can't use the word at your convenience to make a point, but then not legally. Yeah, totally, totally game. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing just strikes. There's a couple things. I mean, I think optically, and, and you and I chatted about this on Twitter, I think it, if the calculation for Ford is parents do not want any more school disruption and therefore extraordinary means to appease parents. Um, they can win that fight. That's kind of one. And my second point, and you can react to either of them, my second point is in some senses I feel like QP is the boy who cried wolf where under any government going back to from Ray days to now there there has never been uh, a, a peaceful negotiation process education has always been teetering at dissolving and under threat and insert any hyperbolic language and now I mean if you look at the grievances of these educate ed education workers they're actually pretty legit we're not talking about the the federal bureaucrats who took pay raises when they were all not working because of COVID restrictions. I mean, these are people who who are of modest uh, incomes. They have not gotten a serious pay raise in a long time. This the grievance is serious, but I almost feel like there's a bit of a disconnect because for people on the inside, it's like, well, yeah, but QP is always kind of making those claims. I'll let you react to either of those statements as as you see fit. <laughs> well, I would say this. I would say, look, there's been a built up animosity between the public and teachers forever. And I say teachers, and I'm going to qualify that because a lot of people still don't understand the distinction between what's going on. They still don't understand that QP is not, teachers, yes, is not the teachers right? union. So, yeah, right. So when you talk about what teachers pay is, we're not talking about you know, the teacher in the classroom, we're talking about the EA, we're mm -hmm. talking about sports staff, we're talking about janitorial staff, we're talking mm -hmm. about all of these people. And from what I understand, their 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 wages are sitting around $40,000. Now, it it's just the, the wage is asinine 100%. But I want to keep in mind that we're not talking about teachers, and they do get paid per hour. And they, mm -hmm. it's a very mm -hmm. different yeah. scenario right yep. so first and foremost that but second of all sure doug ford is running on the and unfortunately this has been a thing since oh i would say pretty clearly since mike harris um because mike harris did a beautiful job of separating teachers from administrators Mm -hmm. So under Mike Harris's government, one of his big moves, and in my opinion, the entire thing is, this entire thing is to bust the union, 100%. Anybody who says the government doesn't want to bust unions, of course they do. And, and I would say that true of many governments, not just conservative governments, because the unions are powerful. I don't want to have to negotiate with that as a yeah, government. The only caveat I would add to that is... There's, and I think we see this difference with, with Ford. We saw it in the last election based on which unions endorsed him and which unions do not. I think there is a, there's an important caveat. It's probably not a conversation we can have in the remaining time between public sector unions and private sector unions. Of course there is because it's not coming out of his 
pocket. Yep. Right. Well, his well, his, his, he can support his pocket or, or our or pocket. Construction workers. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah. You're right. Our pocket. Absolutely. Yep. Of course, he can support those workers because he doesn't have to negotiate. It doesn't come out of his bottom line. It's not coming out of his spending. Listen, education, and we could go on a whole tangent about healthcare. These are the two biggest biggest budget points for provincial government. And if they mm-hmm. want to cut their budget, it has to come from there. And building up the mythology that these guys are just babysitting your kids anyways, and they're not essential, that, that was going on for quite some time. My problem here is um, you can't have that at the same time as the last two years talking about how essential teachers are, yes. how they need to be in class. Like, yep. in my opinion, they just shot themselves in the foot. And if anybody's paying attention, when we talk about essential services in our constitution, it stipulates it has to be for, it's it's almost life and death. That's how they've categorized. That's the only people that can be essential. Well, I'm going to make one statement. Aren't teachers life and death? Haven't we, haven't the government talked about mental health rates yeah. of depression rates of rates of potential self-harm haven't those all gone through the roof aren't teachers now by the government this government's own admission aren't they a product of mental health which is physical health and is yeah. life and death yeah i think you it's it's a it's just the perfect mix of cognitive dissonance because for, for let's say for folks in my world I thought schools were probably closed for too long. Um, we're going to see a real serious lag and impact. And I'm sure you see it. You're a teacher. You're frontline. You, you're going to see that. Uh, I have family members who are teachers. Um, the pivot to online learning for younger students. I mean, I know for my nephews. I, my one nephew wouldn't do his grade one class unless he wore his snowmobile helmet. Yeah, impossible. So we spent a lot of time barking about how important it was that that kids were back in school because this is such an important part of their lives. And yes, I understand that that's the justification for the notwithstanding clause. But at the same time, you would think that there would maybe be on the other side, some recognition that if you are in leveling up education workers to that level of importance, um, that there's some, there's the, that yeah, that you that you do have to provide some sort of compensation and and whatnot, and I mean, there's a lot of things. If we talk about the role of government, it's like okay, the provincial government, healthcare, uh, education, those are things you can probably spend money on. I'd like to see both systems become a lot more dynamic and competitive, so that they don't get bloated. The administrative administration side in either of those sectors don't um, end up eating too much of the budget in comparison to teacher salaries and doctor salaries and whatnot. But um, yeah, I mean, it's cognitive dissonance. And uh, one of the things that we chatted about was whether or not the appeals to the charter fall on deaf ears, because not that I was in this camp, really, the the folks who complained about the, the charter violations in regards to COVID, I mean, mobility rights, you legally couldn't leave the country um, by any serious means. If, if you chose not to be vaccinated for legitimate reasons or for silly reasons. Um, we we kind of laughed at those people for two years. And, and that was how we engaged because I said, well, I'm not sure if this is the best communication strategy because 
people stopped caring about the charter and our federal government really didn't care about the charter when Quebec passed just disgusting legislation discriminating against religious minorities. And so now we're in this weird toxic soup of provincial overreach. Is it for the greater good? Is it not for the greater good? I don't know. It's complicated. I think people can see that the grievances are legitimate, but I I just feel on the other side, parents are probably, if they do a a cost-benefit analysis, go, ah, whatever, I want my kids in school. A hundred percent. And what I want us, and I know we need to go, but what I want us to focus on just at the last point here is the fact that they keep saying that the union and teachers are using kids as a pawn when they're the ones in the classroom every day, doing everything they possibly can to make sure your kids are safe and healthy and educated. And the government is consistently saying we're not using them as a pawn. Well, yes, you are. You absolutely are when you force this agenda and keep saying, I want your kids in class. I want your kids. But to hell with the conditions under which they are going to be in class. I don't care if there's 45 kids in the class. I don't care if you don't have computers or books because we're not willing to pay. Both sides are guilty in this regard. You'd have to get to the specifics of this negotiation. But again, you raise a good point. right? Unfortunately, it's kids and de facto parents who are the ones who are caught in the middle and it's a political game and it's ugly and we don't like it, but uh, it's been a pleasure having you on the program. I encourage everyone to, uh, to follow Joanna unlearn uh, 16 um, on social media. Yeah. We'll have you back on the, uh, on the show uh, soon. Thank you so much, sir. Have a good day.